From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Michigan State University constitutional law professor Frank Ravitz joins me to discuss the recent Supreme Court's masterpiece cake shop decision. Did it protect religious liberty or affirm discrimination? That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. By a 7-2 decision, the Supreme Court in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission recently ruled in favor of the bakery's owner, Jack Phillips. In 2012, David Mullins and Charlie Craig asked Phillips to bake a cake to celebrate their planned wedding. Phillips said he couldn't create the product they were looking for without violating his faith. The Colorado Civil Rights Commission ruled in favor of Mullins and Craig, but the Supreme Court overturned that ruling, and it leaves unsettled broader constitutional questions about religious liberty. To address some of these unsettled questions is constitutional law professor Frank Ravitch. Professor Ravitch is the Walter H. Stowers Chair of Law and Religion at Michigan State University. Professor Frank Ravitch, welcome to The Public Morality. Pleasure to be here. Uh, It's been widely viewed that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the baker Jack Phillips in this case. In your view, sir, would that be an accurate assessment of what the court actually ruled? Well, they did rule in his favor in the the sense that he, you you know, he won the case, but they didn't decide the case on the basis that he really wanted them to decide it on. He didn't find that there was a violation of his free speech rights and the violation of his religious freedom that they found was really based on the actions of some people in the Colorado Civil Rights Commission as well as a, another set of cases involving different bakeries. So, you know, on the, on the, the substantive issue, he didn't really win, uh, but he did actually win the, the case. The outcome was in his favor. Mm-hmm. Would it be accurate to say then he prevailed? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that is a really good way to put it. I would say, you know, he, legally, he prevailed legally, but, but the court did not answer the legal questions that I think a lot of us expected that they would answer. Um, and so to the extent that he won legally, he won for himself in his case, but it really doesn't set any significant precedent for other cases. Did the court uh, factor or make any distinction that uh, Mr. Phillips was willing to sell uh, the same-sex couple uh, baked goods. He just wasn't willing to participate in the event. Did they take that up at all? Was that part of their thinking? They, they, they mentioned it in the majority opinion. That issue comes up more in uh, the concurring opinions and the dissenting opinion. And the majority opinion, really, what they focused on was, for, you know, uh, uh, for the most part, the, the behavior of really there was one person on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. They tried to read something into the statements by another person on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Um, and then there were cases of an, a, another person who would go into some bakeries in Colorado 
and asked them to bake uh, a, a cake that was very much against same-sex marriage, relatively hateful things on it. Um, and the bakers refused to bake those cakes. And the court used the fact that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission didn't um, find a violation in those cases, but did in Jack Phillips' case, and that that one commissioner um, said such you know negative things, um, they used that to decide the case rather than um, what what Phillips specifically did himself uh, versus um, you know the free speech questions and, and so forth. So it was a relatively narrow holding, and I, and I should say for the record that um, the, I think the court was got the issue about the other Baker cases that came before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission completely wrong. Those cases are completely different and, and shouldn't have even been considered um, along with the case with, with Jack Phillips. Even if Phillips should have won, those, those other cases that the court relied on were just were really quite irrelevant, I think. Mm-hmm. You, want to, you want to talk about those cases? Uh... Yeah, yeah, they're, they're interesting. There was this, this guy, uh, his last name is Jack. Uh, which is ironic because Jack Phillips, the first name is Jack, the, the baker. But this guy went into three different bakeries in Colorado, and he asked each of them to bake a Bible-shaped cake um, and then um, put, put a picture of a uh, male and male uh, groom and groom, I guess you could say, with a red circle and a, and a line through it. And then on the sides, he had, at least in two of the cases, quotes, um, from the Bible or other statements that were relatively negative, um, to put it mildly, towards same-sex marriage. And the third baker, he moderated a bit and used quotes that essentially su- suggest, um, you know, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner kind of thing. Um, the bakeries refused. There was never any reason um, given other than they found the, 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 the hatefulness of it I think particularly the image of the two male grooms with the circle and the line through it um, to be offensive. They said, "Hey, we'll bake you a we'll bake you a Bible cake. Well, you know, we bake they bake religious cakes. They bake cakes for, you know, for any religious event. They just, you know, one even gave said, we'll give you the piping. You can write whatever you want on it.' Um, but but basically, um, the, the he sued based on religious discrimination at the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and and they. In that case, they quite properly found this was not religious discrimination. They had no problem with, with baking cakes with religious messages of any kind. Um, they, what they had the objections to was um, promoting what they viewed as hateful messages, um, but not based on religion, based on the hatefulness itself. An atheist could have come in, and they would have said the same thing. You know, somebody from any other religion or no religion at all could have come in, just an average homophobe, and they would have they would have said the same thing. So the Colorado Civil Rights Commission in those cases simply said, look, this wasn't about, this wasn't about um, uh, discrimination against religion. It was about the offensiveness of the message. The court had some issues with the fact that the Civil Rights Commission mentioned the offensiveness of the message. But in reality, they were simply saying this isn't religious discrimination. It sounds as if... Uh this case uh, began with wide-ranging implications to what some would believe would be about religious liberty and others would say uh, discrimination. But what it was essentially decided, as you had 
uh, previously mentioned on a procedural matter. And is that why we had a 7-2 vote for Mr. Baker as opposed to the 5-4 decisions that we're more accustomed to? Well, what I will say is it, it wasn't really decided so much on a procedural matter as it was on a really, really narrow substantive matter mm-hmm. that that the, the Civil Rights Commission discriminated against him. That you know, but it was it was really, really narrow. I otherwise I completely agree. I mean, I think that many of us expected a very important question to be answered here about whether or not this sort of situation violates free speech rights, whether or not. It, 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 it raises any other questions of, of religious freedom. Um, and, and they just, the court just didn't answer those questions. And I also think that the, the narrow, you know, holding, the narrow um, focus of the decision did lead to the 7 2. In fact, Justice uh, Kagan's concurring opinion with Justice Breyer um, really was, was, was pretty clear about that, that this was a, and, and the majority opinion itself says, look, you know, this is just about this case. We're not saying anything about any other case. So it really, it, you know, it, it, it was, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, but as, as, a, as somebody very invested in these issues, it was really unfulfilling for both sides, I think, in a sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, neither side got an answer to questions that are vexing people quite a bit, that are really causing a lot of, of questions in states and, you know, all over the country. Well, since you um, mentioned the unfulfillment, I'm, I'm going to further that by reading a passage from Justice Kennedy's um, majority uh, opinion and um, get your thoughts on it. Uh, it is, quote, it is a general rule that religious or philosophical objections do not allow business owners and other actors in the economy and in society to deny protected persons equal access to goods and services under anti-discrimination law. What do you make of that? Yeah, you know, I mean, that that is a correct statement. Um, you know, the court then goes on to hold that despite that, you know, in this case, they, <coughs> the law wasn't being applied neutrally. In other words, they said, in this case, the law was being applied in a way that discriminated against the baker's religion. But that statement is, I think it's absolutely true, and my book, Freedom's Edge, you know, I, I point out, I think one of the court's biggest mistakes was actually to grant free ex, uh, protection under Religious Freedom Restoration Act to for-profit businesses. Um, and I, but I think, you know, Kennedy's point is, is really, is, on that is really correct. I mean, anti-discrimination laws usually do trump religious freedom claims. So, you know, you don't usually have for this case called Piggy Park, where a barbecue um, uh, discriminated against African Americans. That was in and South. I, that was in South Carolina, right, sir? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And and you know in that case, you know the the court said you you know anti discrimination law here. You know you may have the freedom to conduct your business. You may even have you know freedom of your viewpoint, your expression, whatever. But this is you know the anti discrimination laws trump. Um, and in, in my book, in, in, in a law review article, you know, I, I pointed out that not only do anti-discrimination laws usually trump um, this. I, sh- I should stop using the word trump, given the era we're in now. Um, I'm, I'm using, I'm, it's I'm such using an, it's such a convenient word to make your point. So you <laughs> yeah, I want to be clear. I'm using it as a verb, not yeah. a person. 
Um, but the but the reality is that um, you know anti discrimination laws and anti discrimination principles, and I think this is what Kennedy was getting at, always give the government a compelling interest to enforce laws. There's questions under a legal test about you know narrow tailoring, but applying those laws consistently is has been generally found by the courts to be what we call narrowly tailored to meet the, the, the government's really important interests. And that means that there's really almost no way that a business could get away with this sort of discrimination um, under general anti-discrimination principles, except that it seems that if it's a religious business and that business is subject by the state civil rights authorities to some sort of religious discrimination itself. And so, um, it, you know, Kennedy's point could have been a, a jumping off. In fact, if you look at the, uh, Justice Ginsburg's dissenting opinion, you know, it sort of is a jumping off point. You can, you can look at this as, a, as a, a point from which they could say, well, that and therefore this was either discrimination, so it violated the public accommodations law, and therefore it's, you know, Colorado could sanction it, or the court could have said, well, this this was not discrimination because in Jack Phillips' case, there were, you know, lots of suggestions that, that he would have done anything else other than, you know, a cake for a same-sex wedding. So they might have held, well, this wasn't about discrimination against gays and lesbians. It was about ethical concerns over same-sex marriage. Now, that would raise a whole other question about well, where's the line then between identity um, and and message? Um, and and that would have been addressed if the court had answered the free speech questions, but they didn't. Well, I, I there's a possible irony here in that this case was originally based on discrimination of a same-sex couple, and yet it was discrimination uh, perceived by the Colorado Commission that the court ruled. So, so in that sense, they took discrimination of one over the perceived discrimination of another. Would that? Am I oversimplifying that? I, I don't think you are. I mean, I, I think that I, I think that the the finding here was that the the state commission did not act neutrally. It did discriminate against Jack Phillips based on on his religion, which is ironic because the the, the court never says <coughs> that if there had been a proper procedure. Um, Jack Phillips would have been safe. The court even suggests that, you know, if, if Colorado had followed the proper procedure, then we might have a very different case. Um, the problem here was that the Colorado um, Civil Rights Commission, and this really, quite honestly, I think is a lesson to progressives on this issue. I mean, I think both sides are playing this game of brinksmanship. And this was just really one person on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission they tried to blow something out of proportion that another person said, but and what this person said was, I think that really did reflect a complete lack of understanding of how people of faith exist. Um, and it was, it was, it, it was, you know, discriminatory. Ironically, that commissioner's insensitivity towards Phillips helped the court excuse the discrimination against Craig and Mullins, the couple. So it, it, it's, it's really. I, I think you're exactly right, and, it, and it, it, it's, it's quite ironic. Um, it, it would be funny if real people's lives weren't involved, 
that that this that came out this way. But unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on your perspective, it did. It, you, you know, you often one of the common refrains uh, that you hear uh, from um, conservative politicians is they want justices who will interpret the law. That's, yeah. Where does, and you sort of mentioned it earlier, but Colorado, my understanding, has a public accommodations law, plus you have the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964. Did those come into play at all here? Well, yeah, the Colorado, the CADA, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act was at the core of this. Um, and... Um, you know, the court didn't find that there could not have, let me put it more clearly, the court did not say there might, that, that the Colorado law wasn't violated by Jack Phillips. They simply said that Jack Phillips himself was discriminated against by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So perhaps in another circumstance, the Colorado law could be enforced and somebody like Jack Phillips might lose. Um, the Civil Rights Act of of 1964 didn't come into play because um, the case was decided under state law. And, um, you know, it's, it's still at this point unclear what role um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 plays in uh, protecting people based on sexual orientation. There's been, you know, there's been some, uh, you know, some lower courts have said it does based on gender stereotyping. Other lower courts have said it doesn't. Um, so, um you know, there, there's some question about that. But it was all decided under Colorado law. The appeal to the Supreme Court, actually, it's a little bit unusual, came from the Colorado Court of Appeals rather than the Colorado Supreme Court because that, that, that court didn't hear the case. If you're just joining us, my guest is Michigan State University constitutional law professor Frank Ravitch, who is uh, on Skype from Kyoto, Japan. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we are honored. We are honored to have him late night in, uh, from Japan to give us his thoughts on this recent uh, Supreme Court ruling. Uh, and Professor Ravitch, why don't we take a step back, and if you would give us the role, we'll call it the role of Supreme Court one hundred and one, because there's there's always a tendency to look at the verdict or the outcome to determine how we feel about a specific issue, and that's only a portion of the court's role. Is that correct? That, that's very correct, and I think it's. I, I think that there's there's two important points in there. One is the main point, and two is the way the way you use the word "feel." A lot of times, people judge Supreme Court opinions by how they feel about the outcome in the opinion, but sometimes the reasoning in the opinion is far more important than the outcome. Um, in, in many cases, um, and, and you know, in this case, it's it's a very narrow decision. Um, but I, I, I do think that, you know, a lot of times these opinions that we get from the Supreme Court are really packed with a lot of um, information legally. And there's a tendency to focus more on the, on the sort of social understanding of these opinions. Um, and, and in many cases, the, the legal importance of the opinions lies somewhere else. In this particular case, the opinion is so narrow that I really do think people on each side are just going to judge it by what they think should have happened if the court had addressed the merits. So people who support uh, the Baker, Jack Phillips, are thrilled. Oh, my God, he won. This is wonderful. 
and those who uh, supported uh, Craig and Mullins, the, the couple that, that, that won the case before the Colorado um, Civil Rights Commission, are, are thinking this is horrible and, you know, this is a blow um, uh, for, for same-sex marriage and it's, it's a terrible outcome before the courts favoring religion over sexual orientation. But, but actually, that's, that's, none of that's true. I mean, this was a really super narrow holding. It is meaningless for the most part outside of the facts of this case. Um, and so people should, on the one side, shouldn't get so excited, and on the other side, shouldn't get so depressed. Although I guess we could all be depressed if they didn't answer the question <laughs> that we right. hoped they would answer. <laughs> now, 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 specific to this case, uh, for lack of a better term, what was, and we'll, we'll take Justice Kennedy out of this for a moment, what was the conservative rationale, say most notably uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, and juxtapose that with the liberal rationale, uh, uh, most notably Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What were their uh, uh, differing perspectives on, on this particular case? Yeah, you know, it's, it's the, a lot of Gorsuch's um, concurring opinion was um, was about the, the, the case, the cases with that other baker I mentioned. Um, and I actually, I, I found some of his reasoning uh, to be. Um, assuming that we, that we step through the looking glass in a way. Um, you know, the, the case involving that other baker was quite different. Gorsuch's opinion, uh, concurring opinion, suggests that, you know, it's exactly the same. These, these other bakeries refused to bake the cake because of the hateful message on it. Um, and, but they would have baked cakes for any other you know, Christian, any other religious person, they would have baked this guy a religious cake, just not with the hateful messages on it. He, he somehow compared that to um, the, the Jack Phillips not baking a cake for same-sex, uh, a same-sex couple, saying, well, he wouldn't bake a, a cake celebrating a same-sex marriage for a heterosexual couple. And, and that, that, to me, was a remarkably odd thing to say. Um, you know, um, so I don't have quite a feel for Gorsuch yet on the Supreme Court, but it was a, it was a very odd statement. Um, and then Justice Ginsburg in dissent, and also I would say Justice Kagan in her concurring opinion with Justice Breyer took this on as well. But in dissent, Justice Ginsburg just really kind of ripped into that, you know, in a respectful way, but she ripped into it. And she pointed out that, you know, a wedding cake is a cake celebrating those individuals' wedding, right? So, you know, a heterosexual company, couple is not going to ask for a same-sex wedding cake, right? <laughs> because they're, they're celebrating their wedding. Um, and so she pointed out that the analogy makes no sense, that the cake involving the other bakeries was not religious discrimination at all. They were simply refusing to write a hateful message. They write any religious message he wanted, and they would not write the hateful message to anyone. Atheists, agnostics, there's lots of homophobes out there that are not religious, and they wouldn't they wouldn't do for uh, bake the cake for those folks. Um, but you know, Gorsuch's argument that well, Jack Phillips wouldn't bake a same-sex marriage cake for a heterosexual couple um, or for anybody else. It, 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 it's just sort of assuming, as I said, a world through the looking glass. I mean, it, it didn't 
it just didn't seem all that credible to me. There were other parts in his concurring opinion where, where, where he made some really reasonable arguments, but those initial arguments kind of took the credibility right out of it. You know, I had to kind of get my breath back as I was reading the opinion. I, I was literally thinking, you're kidding me. Um, and, you know, and I'm, as, as you know, I'm kind of supportive of both religious freedom and sexual freedom. So, um, I, I, you know, I thought that Ginsburg's comeback to that was, was appropriate. Um, so, you know, Gorsuch's opinion was, um, was, was pretty strong on trying to play up that, that, you know, this was religious discrimination in the other bakery cases. Um, Ginsburg, you know, yeah, she came at it from clearly a more progressive, I guess you might call it, perspective. Um, but, but she, too, said, look, we're not here to say that religious people don't have a right to object to same-sex marriage. All we're saying is that if you're engaged in this public business and there's a public accommodation law, then that law should be applied to you. And she just argued that the majority put way too much weight on the statement by the one commissioner on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission that was negative towards Phillips' religion, and that the bakery cases are just involving the other guy where he wanted the, the cakes that were against same-sex marriage. It's, 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 those are just different situations. So that was kind of how it played out. There was an interesting interplay between Justice Thomas and Justice Ginsburg. Thomas's opinion was the only one that actually addressed the free speech issue. And, of course, he, he found that there would have been a, a violation of free speech so that, um, so that, uh, that Jack Phillips would have won, even if the court had addressed that. None of the other justices other than Gorsuch, who joined Thomas, agreed with that. Um, but Ginsburg takes that on and suggests that it's not at all clear that Phillips would have won the free, uh, the free speech claim and that it's, it's really even questionable whether or not um, the wedding cake itself was expression or expressive conduct that would be protected by the free speech clause. So there was a lot of give and take there, but it was, it was um, the, the, I guess the most poignant exchange, if you want to call it that, was between Gorsuch and Ginsburg, as you suggested. Um, and then Kagan's opinion also, her concurring opinion, also took on Gorsuch's stance on that. So it was kind of interesting. Uh, more interesting than the majority. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take another step back. Uh, you already gave us the role of the Supreme Court 101. Uh, let's take another step back and, 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 and tell us what is uh, religious liberty and has this understanding evolved? You know, that is a really, really good question. I've devoted the last few years of my research life and life focused on this. And it's exactly why we had you on the public rally, because we knew you could answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I talk about this in Freedom's Edge. I think both of these things, you know, they go to the core of what a human being is. Somebody's religion is not something that they just put on to go to church on the weekend or go to synagogue on Saturday or mosque on Friday or, or, or whatever institution they go to. You know, for many people, religion is inseparable from who they are. Um, religion is a core part of being. And, you know, for these people, they don't, they don't just take their religion off at work. They don't take their religion off when they're, when they're driving. Whatever they're doing, it's part of who they are. 
Well, and of course, the same is true um, with with uh, sexual orientation. And in fact, in the case of sexual orientation, it's also biological. Um, so that you're, you know, th this is the core of what a human being is. So in this sense, you know, when we look at religious freedom, you know, it has evolved for, because people have tried to use it. I'm not saying Jack Phillips. Jack Phillips is, is one of the more sympathetic characters in this. But I'm talking about, like, the Mississippi legislature or, or other people who might be pandering to constituents um, who try to directly use religious freedom in a way that puts it as opposed to um, the, the reproductive freedom rights of women and rights of the LGBT community. Um, and this use of religious freedom has caused religious freedom to be misperceived by many, many people in the public. Religious freedom is not about discrimination as a general matter. Ninety plus percent of religious freedom claims are about protecting religious minorities who weren't considered when a particular law was crafted um, and they need an exception to it or the religion might be violated. It's about protecting Native American religion. It's about protecting Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and as well Christian religious minorities, you know, Seventh-day Adventists you know, as well as Jehovah's Witnesses, and also technically the, you know, the majority, although the majority is usually considered when laws are made. So religious freedom was, until recently, viewed as a very important form of not just civil rights, but in some cases, uh, civil liberties, but in some cases, civil rights for religious minorities, even though it protects everybody. But lately, it's come to be viewed like Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, for example, have come to be viewed as a, really an assault on, on progressive values, on reproductive freedom and LGBT rights. And as someone who supports both religious freedom, uh, RIFRAs, as well as total protection for reproductive freedom and, um, and, uh, and LGBT rights, I have to say that they're not in conflict. They're put in conflict. There are places where they conflict, mostly with for-profit businesses, but most religious freedom claims have nothing to do with gay rights or, uh, you know, abortion rights or anything like that. They're about a kid who needs off for a holiday, um, or you know, the kid's going to fail, or somebody who can't eat during Ramadan but you know needs to be able to bring food into a classroom at night because they haven't eaten all day, or you know, Native Americans who, you know, need to protect an area that <clears throat> might be uh, affected by a government contract or something like that. You know, um, this is what religious freedom is mostly about. Seventh-day Adventists who need to take off work on Saturday. Um, you know, uh, a Jewish person who needs to wear a yarmulke in a place where there's a rule that you shouldn't have any headwear on, you know. So, I mean... Religious freedom as a whole is a really good thing. It's part of what has made us a great nation. You know, my ancestors and many other people, you know, came to the U.S. You know, they talk about immigration being about, um, about economic freedom, but a lot of people came to the U.S. for religious freedom, you know, escaping persecution in Europe in particular um, in, the, in the latter part of the 19th century and the earliest 
early 20th century. So religious freedom is really important, but unfortunately today, what you might call the extreme social conservatives have tried to brand it as a way to discriminate against members of the LGBT community. And they're, I, I don't even think they realize they are doing untold damage to religious freedom. Just because it plays well in Mississippi doesn't mean that that law is helping religious freedom. It's hurting religious freedom in 40 other states. Because it, it, it can be used as a, it can be weaponized by those who oppose religious freedom. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that um, religious freedom today is very, very suspect in America. Um, and, and it's sad because it's a very, very important right. Um, whereas, you know, um, the, the concerns about it being weaponized by political conservatives um, it, you know, overlooks the fact that it was actually RIFRA, the Federal Religious Freedom, Freedom Restoration Act, was passed unanimously by Democrats and, and Republicans. And it's, it's, it's sad because we're in a world today where that could never happen again because the two sides just weaponize everything against each other. And it's not just Republicans, Democrats. I mean, sometimes they agree on things. But it's the people who are against religious freedom and the people who are for religious freedom that are not on the extremes on both sides that get hurt. Do you worry that um, beyond uh, religious freedom, uh, my words, that we may be headed toward religious subjectivity? Um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question, and, and it, I know your background in theology, so um, I, I, would, I would say, you know, this is one you might be better qualified to answer <laughs> Uh, than me, because you have an excellent background. I just asked the questions. That's all I do here, sir. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to answer it, but, but uh, I'm going I'm to give one caveat before I answer it, which is that I have written in other areas of my writing that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the terms objectivity and subjectivity because they create sort of a Western dualism. I, I kind of like the word context. Okay. Um, but, um, but I'll use the term subjective context because... I think that's, that's really um, a, 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 an important issue today. I mean, I do think that people are beginning to view religion as something that is just a subjective, kind of odd, in some cases, thing about somebody. That, that religion is just like it's your thing. You know, it's just, it's just your personal thing. It, you know, it, you don't have any right to express it anywhere else. It's just your subjective context, and, you know, so leave it out of everywhere else. But, you know, that's not really the way religion actually operates in, in at least a lot of people's lives. So uh, I think you're right. I think it's a very, very important problem um, that rather than viewing religion as sort of part of someone's being, uh, people are really, I think you said, you know, you really hit it on the head. People are viewing it as sort of the subjective concept that people just, you know, they just make, you know, it's just their thing, you know, and it's no important, no more important to them than like what kind of shoes they wear. You know, it's just this, you know, this person has it, this person doesn't and whatever. Um, there's another element to it as well, which is, you know, this question about moral or religious truth. Um, and I do think they're becoming maybe what we might call more contextually subjective is a good thing. Nobody, nobody has the right to say, 
you know, my religion, well, everybody has the right to say my religion is right and, you know, you should follow it, but nobody has the right to use government to impose that on people, or at least we, we hope. Right. We'll see with the current with the current leadership, but uh, you know, until recently, at least we we thought that. Yeah, we, they, by the way, if the current administration tries to do that, that will, I think even this court will find it unconstitutional. Well, the the reason I raise that uh, is is because, ironically, uh, because because of my background in theology, I, I will opine on this piece alone. Uh, ironically, there is no uh, biblical statement one way or the other that opposes or supports uh, same-gender same marriage. So, so to oppose it has to be some religious subjectivity uh, or, 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 or nuance of what, what you believe or what you think is wrong. But there's, there's no text that, that, that opposes that or supports it. So, so Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely, you know, I, I actually just wrote a chapter for a book um, uh, dealing with exactly this issue. It's called Tradition's Edge, and I look at four religious traditions and how they evaluate um, uh, same-sex rights, including same-sex marriage. Um, and, and, you know, three of the four are using the same, uh, the, the, the roughly the same books. And um, and you're right. I mean, look, look at the difference between, for example, um, the Episcopalian Church and the Southern Baptist Church, right? I mean, uh, the Episcopalian Church has interpreted the same Old and New Testament, um, and yet they've found that there that there is nothing prohibiting uh, marriage between uh, a, a same-sex couple, um, and in fact that it, it's supported by broader biblical uh, concepts um, on on you know be treating your your fellow people as you would want to be treated yourself. Um, the Southern Baptist Church has taken obviously a very different position on that. Um, I think one of the most interesting positions, and one that I think a lot of people are not familiar with, and it makes your point exactly, um, is uh, the position of the United Synagogues for Conservative Judaism. Um, they, you know, uh, obviously are frequently, when they're looking at the at only the Old Testament, but they're looking at it in the original Hebrew and evaluating it very, very carefully. And after much, much discussion and much, much debate, um, they came to a position, uh, what's called a responsum, that uh, same-sex marriage is acceptable. Um, and in fact, they pointed out that there's no biblical prohibition, even on sexual relations between women. So for lesbians, right. there, there's right. not even an issue for that. And that for men, the only thing the Bible specifically prohibits is, 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 uh, is sodomy, and it provides it for everybody, regardless of whether you're straight or gay or not. And therefore, there's nothing that's all that specific um, that would prohibit same-sex marriage. But I will say, in coming to that conclusion, they very, very much said that we accept the evidence that sexual orientation is biological. And therefore, to the extent that anything could be interpreted in a way that would oppose same-sex unions uh, or same-sex marriages, that would go against the fact that God wouldn't create people um, who are biologically determined to be attracted to each other and not want them to have happy, fulfilled lives, which is very similar to what the Episcopalian Church says. Um, and yet, you know, many, you know, 
many churches have have disagreed with both the Episcopalian Church and the interpretation of the Old Testament by United Synagogue. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I guess you could say it's at least at least by denomination and maybe by individual, it's subjective. Um, so uh, you know, I, I'm sorry. I think in the, I initially misunderstood. Um, and, and I think you're right. I mean, I think it can be viewed that way. I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't have the right to tell someone what their view of the Bible should be, but I think that people might want to look at it pretty carefully before they make these, some of these statements that, that you hear people making. Yeah, it just seems to me that if, 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 you, if you go down that road, and, and, and I agree with your earlier statement, that um, Jack Phillips seems like a sympathetic character, but at the same time, if you allow him to use his understanding and and allow that discrimination to take place, um, do you not open the door for my understanding? Let's say you, I will not sell to anybody who wears a brown suit. And I, I and I quote some weird passage in the Bible. Are you not opening up the door for further discrimination? Well, that's you know that's that's the question that I think a lot of people were concerned about. Um, you know, good news for for you if you did want to discriminate against people with brown suits. There's probably you wouldn't be in violation of any civil rights law. But I mean, but but seriously speaking, I mean, what if someone wanted to use it to discriminate against people based on race or national origin? And I, and I know that's what you're getting at. And you're right, that is a real concern um, or, or religion. I don't want to bake a cake for someone who's not Christian or whatever. Um, you know that it's that is a real that is a real concern. Um, you know, I think that I, the court, I think, opened a very dangerous door for religious freedom when it found in a case called Hobby Lobby that was not interpreting the Constitution; it was interpreting a federal statute. No, nope. court found we've done shows on Hobby Lobby, so talk about Hobby. I mean, go ahead and tell us what Hobby Lobby is and remind us because we've done shows on that. Yeah, Hobby Lobby was this case involving the contraceptive mandate uh, under the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, that, that mandate required that um, employers provide contraceptive coverage um, for female employees. Um, and um, so a couple of employers, including Hobby Lobby, which has 33,000 employees, you know, objected to this. The law already had, the mandate already had an exception for religious institutions and a different exception for religious nonprofits. But the court ultimately held that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, protects the right of at least closely held family-owned for-profit businesses to exercise their religious freedom to deny this sort of coverage um, to uh, the, the, the female employees. And um, the uh, and then it analyzed the the denial under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act once it found that for-profit entities had protection under the act, and then found that the, that Hobby Lobby and the other companies won. Um, it it was a I, I am one of the biggest critics of the decision. Ironically, my criticism of the decision um, is that I think it, it not only hurt obviously hurts reproductive freedom, and it could be used to discriminate against uh, members of the LGBT community, um, at least at least theoretically. Uh, so that's obviously a big problem. But I also think it hurts religious freedom. I think when we protect 
for-profit entities. I mean, if Jack Phillips had been a church bakery, we wouldn't be having this discussion, right? I mean, nobody would question the fact that a church bakery doesn't have to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding if it doesn't want to. Um, You know, nobody's going to force a a minister, despite what some people have said to gain political points, nobody is going to say that a priest, a minister, a rabbi, an imam, or anybody else has to perform a same-sex wedding, and nobody's going to make anybody go to one. Right. You know, the, 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 you know, once we start protecting for-profit entities is when the real risk of discrimination comes into play. I mean, in my book, I explained how we can accommodate county clerks in many cases, not Kim Davis, <laughs> the, the, the one you might have heard about in the news. But, you know, if there's more than one person who can do something, the one person can just say, oh, sure, you know, let me get someone who can help you. There's no delay. The same-sex couple doesn't know why. They're just getting someone who can help you, and you get your wedding license. But once you open the door to for-profit businesses, now suddenly there could be discrimination around every corner, potentially. Um, and I, I think that that really is a risk. I, you know, I think a line could be drawn between a small mom-and-pop business like Jack Phillips, where they're actually doing the work themselves, designing the cakes, if they're engaged in an expressive activity, and that's the one open question, whether baking a cake is an expressive or making a cake is an expressive activity, we could see an, I could see a narrow exception for that. You know, if someone paints portraits by hand um, and doesn't want to paint a portrait of a same-sex couple, you know, it's hard to separate the artist from the business at that point. But, you know, once we open the door to for-profit entities, um, I think I think religious freedom gets undermined because people oppose it more. And then, as you point out, discrimination becomes a very, very real possibility in daily life. Um, but I, I think we could draw a line. Jack Phillips is hard because I'm not convinced that baking the cake or making the cake without anything specifically, unless they requested a, you know, a, a groom-groom cake topper or something, you know, I don't see why he couldn't make the same cake for them that he would make for anybody else. Um, I know he's an artist with the cakes, but they weren't asking for any message to be written on the case. In fact, it's cake. He never even talked to them about what they wanted. Um, So, but I think a line could be drawn to protect against discrimination there, but I'm not sure it should be drawn. I, I, I think we should maybe consider all businesses except for sole proprietorships to, 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 to be subject to anti-discrimination laws regardless of their religious um, views, even if the state has a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which Colorado did. Well, you know, you mentioned Hobby Lobby. One of the concerns I had about Hobby Lobby was that this country has historically, through, it, through it, the amendment process, has expanded rights to the individual. And so when you expand rights to the individual, like if my rights are expanded, you're not hurt by that. But once you expand the rights of corporations, it, does, it can hurt the individual free, First Amendment rights. I wonder what you, what you thought about that argument. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that, that you know, um, you know, when you're expanding rights to individuals, you're expanding rights to individuals. When you're expanding rights to corporations, you're technically expanding rights to pieces of paper that are viewed by the law as persons. Um, but they, you know, they can impact, I mean, depending on the corporation, I mean, there are some closely held corporations 
much larger than Hobby Lobby, which employs 33,000 people. You know, there, there's there's corporations, um, you know, what we, you know, that employ hundreds of thousands of people, and you know, they're they they are different than protecting individual religious freedom. And in fact, I think it's a double whammy, because I think when you protect corporations, um, and if they do discriminate, and, and we're talking here predominantly closely held family-owned, but some of these are really huge, then that makes people more against religious freedom, and so it may actually hurt the religious freedom of an individual, ironically, or a religious organization, because one thing we see in constitutional law and civil rights law as well is the broader the rights become, the more narrowly the court interprets them. So if the court or, or Congress applies the rights to more and more people, courts tend to interpret them more narrowly. Hmm. So the, the, when, once Hobby Lobby gets religious freedom, it may hurt the religious freedom of churches and individuals, while at the same time, risking extreme discrimination potentially against women's reproductive freedom and members of the LGBT community. In my view, it's a, it's a double whammy. It's a lose-lose. Um, as, as you, uh, your experience as constitutional law professor and, and these cases come forward, um, do, do, are you concerned that uh, sort of an unprecedented way that we may have amendments pitted against each other, and specifically in this case, where we might have the First Amendment pitted against the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Do you worry about those types of scenarios? Um, you know, I can't say I worry about them because I like to think, you know, I like to think I have some idea of how they might come out. But, you know, I what I worry about is um, the political environment that we're in where, um, depending on how those come out, we're likely to only hear from one extreme or the other. And so that rather than have rational discussion, well, if the First Amendment somehow wins over an equal protection argument or, or a civil rights statute, then we need to talk about how to make things better so that maybe we can protect everybody better. If the same thing going the other way, but in, in the climate that we're in now, everybody on the extremes are playing a game of brinksmanship. And except for in like the state of Utah, where they actually came up with a, a pretty good compromise uh, where the sides talk to each other. Um, you know, we, we really haven't seen a lot of that. So I worry, I worry more about the fallout from it. So one side's gonna win eventually on this, whether it's the free free speech argument or a religious freedom restoration argument versus an anti-discrimination law or the Equal Protection Clause. And what I worry about is that rather than having people of good faith on both sides get together and try to say, okay, well, this side may have won this, but let's find a way to try to protect everybody as best as possible, we're going to end up with the extremes defining the debate. And then it just becomes brinksmanship. And so the one side wins, so then the other side gets even more extreme and eventually wins something, making the other side more extreme until people can't even talk to each other anymore. 
Um, and and we're that's that really does quite honestly scare me quite a bit. It's very very uh, disturbing because I feel like you know constitutional cases are are important, statutory cases are important, but how we react to them as a nation can also be important. Um, and and given the, the the climate now on on these issues, I I, I wish people like you and your audience, you know, people who, who are interested in these sense, the sense of dialogue, this sense of getting information, maybe agreeing, maybe disagreeing, but, but dialogue. Um, I wish it, that, that, that you were the folks in charge because then the outcomes in these decisions wouldn't scare me as much as they do. Legally, they don't scare me so much. I, you know, I kind of have an idea of how it would go. And if it doesn't go that way, I kind of have an idea how it might go the other way. But but the public reaction being defined by the extremes, that really does scare me. Um, because these are precious values. I mean, you know, the rights of members of the LGBT community um, and the rights of religious people, these are, are, are precious values. And, you know, if it was my choice, I think when we're dealing with for-profit entities, the religious entity should never win when somebody's civil rights are violated. No, I mean, if it was up to me, for-profit entities should pretty much always lose, except for maybe you hire an artist to paint a book, actually do a painting. You know, maybe in that case, it would be like one limited exception. Um, but when it's a church or a religious entity or a synagogue or a mosque or a temple or whatever, you know, they should always pretty much win unless they're doing something horrific you know because again that's within their within their rights so you know that would be the ideal world but unfortunately i don't think that's you know after hobby lobby that's just not where we're going professor frank ravich thank you so much sir for joining us today on the public morality much appreciated the public morality welcomes your comments you can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org that's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.